The word redemption is a word that is pretty common, actually, in our culture today, uh, and you can find that word being used for all sorts of things. Um, I did a quick search online of the word redemption and found it being used in several different contexts. Um, video games was a common way it was used. Uh, financial transactions, um, you can read that word or hear, see it used to talk about the renewal of a city. I'm confident it's been used of Detroit many times, the redemption of the city. And I even found it being used to describe the new Downton Abbey movie. It's a movie, movie of redemption. So if you're into that, be ready for a movie of redemption. But when you, when you find it used in our culture, probably the most common context that that word redemption is used in is sports. It is all over the place. It is almost cliche in sports. Um, everybody's very fond of using the word redemption to describe a team getting beaten very badly and then coming back the next year and it's a game of redemption and they're going to play the same team and redeem themselves or a quarterback throws you know an interception in the first quarter and he's going to redeem himself you know with three touchdowns in the second half so that everybody can see how good he really is um, hopefully one day that word will be used to describe the lions but um, you know not in the foreseeable future I guess right but what, the word redemption is, is becoming so common in our culture that if we're not careful, we can sort of let the culture determine how we use that word and, and even how we read that word in our Bibles and how we think about that word. Um, we can start to think of redemption as something similar to what happens to an athlete or to a sports team. Um, they beat another team after losing to that team previously. And so redemption can very quickly become something that we do. It's something that we earn and we accomplish by our own hard work. We redeem ourselves. Because that's the way the culture normally uses it. And that matters deeply for us in our study of the Bible because redemption is one of the key metaphors that the Bible uses to describe our salvation in Christ and to help us grasp what it actually means that we are saved, what has taken place in our salvation. We are redeemed. Of course, the Bible uses many different images and pictures to help us to understand what has actually taken place, but redemption is a key one of those. And it's important in our passage today in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you're not there, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to continue going through this section, verses 3 to 14, and this section is outlining the benefits that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ, the benefits that come to us in Him because of His work on our behalf. So as you're opening up there, verses 3 to 14, keep in mind that this is all one sentence one very long sentence of 202 words, and this sentence is focused on praising God for the benefits that we have in Christ. That's what Paul's doing here, and that's what he's calling us to do. And as you read this sentence, and as you learn about all of the benefits that we have in Christ, what Paul hopes is happening to you is that your identity is being formed. You are uncovering who you are in Christ, and your identity is being shaped and formed. And this sentence praises the triune God, 
and it comes to us in three sections. And we looked at the first one of those sections last week uh, in verses 4 through 6. We'll look at part of the second one this week. But what happens in this sentence is we've got three benefits of our new identity that call us to praise God. The first one of those is that we are adopted into God's family. Verses 4 to 6, and we looked at that last week. And the second one of those is found in verses 7 through 12. We are redeemed by the Son's work and for His purpose. So you can see we're adopted into God the Father's family in verses 4 to 6. We're chosen and adopted in Him, accepted into the Beloved. Our, Our family status has changed. And then in verses 7 through 12, now He turns from the Father's work in choosing and adopting to the Son's work in our redemption. And even this section, verses 7 through 12, comes to us in two parts. The first part in verses 7 to 8 tells us specifically what Jesus has done, what actually is his work. And then because of his work in verses 9 through 12, he's going to accomplish a purpose for all of creation, a cosmic redemption. And so we're going to begin looking at the work of Christ in verse 7, and that phrase there at the beginning of verse 7, in him we have redemption. Now, we use the word redemption so much. It's used in the culture. We, we use it in the church. We call ourselves the redeemed, and appropriately enough so, right? It's a very biblical term to use. It's an important metaphor for our salvation. But sometimes we can use that word so much that we sort of lose the meaning of it, and it becomes cliché. But when you read that word in verse 7, in him we have redemption, you have to understand that there's an entire Old Testament background that Paul is bringing to the table when he uses the word redemption. Of course, if you're a student of the Bible, you know probably right off the bat, the clearest example of redemption in the Old Testament, the most poignant picture of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus story. And in the Exodus story, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He frees them from bondage. This is how that's described in the song of praise that Moses sings in Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Talking about the Egyptian armies and Pharaoh. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. That word redemption is key there because that describes what had happened to them. They were oppressed, they were enslaved, and God set them free. Now that freedom from slavery and from bondage, that is one side of the coin of redemption. And you need to understand that. That is what is taking place when you are redeemed. You are freed from bondage and enslavement from something. But the the flip side of that coin is equally important for us to understand if we're going to grasp the benefit that we have in Christ when Paul says that we have redemption. To properly redeem something, to, to call something redemption, there has to be a price paid to free that person or that nation from enslavement. The price has to be paid by the Redeemer. Redemption is not free. It's not costless. It's very costly most of the time. That becomes very clear in the Old Testament book of Ruth. 
Ruth is a beloved book, and this thread of redemption runs through the book of Ruth. So in the book of Ruth, Naomi, who's who's an Israelite, and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's a Moabitess, they come back to Israel from Moab. And they come back to Israel because they're poverty-stricken. Both of them are widows. Their husbands have died, and they don't know what else to do. And so they come back to Israel, and Ruth goes out and tries to glean some food from the fields during the day. It was something that poor people were allowed to do. And as she's doing that, she comes home one evening to Naomi, and she tells her that she's gleaned in the field of Boaz. And of course, when this happens, Naomi lights up because she knows Boaz, and she knows who he is. If you're If you want to turn with me over to Ruth, you can do that. I want to read you several passages from Ruth as we explain this concept of redemption there. But Ruth 2 and verse 20, listen to Naomi's response when Ruth tells her this. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man, Boaz, is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, what does Naomi mean when she uses this word to describe Boaz? Why does she call him a redeemer? How does she understand him? Well, one of the laws given in the books of Moses said that a relative of a a deceased uh, brother or cousin, a relative had the responsibility to buy this man's, his relative's land, and to raise up seed of this man's widow in order to keep the brother's line going. And so Boaz here is in the family line, in Naomi's family line, and he is a potential redeemer. He could potentially buy the land that Naomi's husband had, and he could through that marry Ruth because she was a widow in the family line then. But as you're reading in the book of Ruth, we understand that there's a redeemer who's actually closer. There's a relative who's more in line to buy the land and more in line to marry Ruth. Listen to verse, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, this other man of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. There was a cost to this. To redeem it cost him something, and he was worried about his own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And so Boaz does exactly that. He takes the right of redemption, and he pays the cost, and he buys the land, and when he buys the land... He marries Ruth, and of course, ultimately, Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of David, King David, 
But there are two important things that you have to realize through this story of redemption here. First of all, it costs Boaz something. That's wrapped up in this word redeemer. He has to purchase. He has to put money out. He has to buy the land. It was not free for him to do this. And then the second thing you have to realize here in this redemption is the redemption of Naomi and Ruth dramatically changed their life situation. Their circumstances were altered when they were redeemed. Look at their response in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him." They went from poverty to wealth, and they went from death, existing on the edge of society, to life, and life abundantly. And so if you go back over to Ephesians chapter 1, all of that and more forms the background of Paul's use of this word redemption here. So when we read this here in in chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption, how are we to understand this? We have been purchased, bought from slavery to sin and for freedom. But that redemption, that freedom comes at a cost. It is not free. And what's the cost? Look at the next line in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Of course, in the Old Testament, people were saved from their sin committing sin. They were saved from death and punishment by the shedding of the blood of an innocent animal. The payment secures their release from that sin, and our freedom is the blood of Jesus Christ. Our redemption was not free to God. He didn't just wave his hand and magically fix everything and liberate us from sin. It was a costly price that he paid to redeem us. How costly was it? Well, I think it's interesting here in verse 6. Last week, we talked about Jesus Christ as the beloved. And you and I have been adopted into the beloved. And so the relationship between the Father and the Son going all the way back into eternity past is one of love and affection and joy and delight And God the Father gave up his beloved son and shed his blood on the cross, and he suffered on our behalf so that you and I could be free from sin, so we could be purchased back from sin. Listen to 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The amazing thing about our redemption is that we have freedom, that our freedom has been purchased at a great cost, and when our freedom is purchased, we will never go back into slavery to sin again. We are free, completely free, and that is the case 
because our sins are forgiven. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the price paid, and look at how redemption is described. This is the result, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our sins are forgiven. Our trespasses, our transgressions, our willful rebellion, our treachery against a holy God. But those trespasses are forgiven. They are canceled. They are wiped away. The punishment that is due to us, that we require, that we have earned, has been absorbed by the beloved Son through the shedding of his blood. And redemption and forgiveness sometimes can turn into cliche words, but these are amazing gifts. And that's exactly what they are. They are gifts to us. They're gifts to us because we cannot earn them. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor and to merit these gifts. I mean, look how Paul describes it. Verse 7, the end. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, verse 8, which he lavished upon us. We have been bought out of slavery to sin. Our sins have been wiped away only because of God's grace. It's according to his grace. His grace led him to do this for us. Unmerited favor. God was not obligated to redeem you. He was not required to redeem you. After the fall, God would have been perfectly just and perfectly loving and perfectly good to not have redeemed any single one of us. He was not bound to watch his beloved son suffer and shed his blood instead of you or I. But that's what grace means. He was not bound to do that. He was not obligated to do that. But his grace flows in abundance to us. And I love the way it's described here. At the end of verse 7 and verse 8, the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Both of those words there talk about overwhelming extravagance, abundance beyond what you are able to calculate and figure out. I read a couple of weeks ago um, this story about one of the the late co-founders of Microsoft, Um, Everybody knows Bill Gates, but Paul Allen uh, was one of the co-founders of Microsoft and obviously a very wealthy man. He died in, I think, 2018, but they're trying to sell his yacht. So if you're in the market for a boat, you may want to consider this. This particular boat, boat is probably not the right word. They call it a luxury super yacht. There's a category of boats called luxury superyachts. This particular one, owned by this man, Paul Allen, is 414 feet long. It has a pool, a hot tub, a recording studio, a cinema. It has a glass-bottomed observation lounge in it. It has elevators, a basketball court. We're talking about a boat, remember, right? Okay. A helicopter landing pad. You can store your SUV on it, and just in case, they keep a submarine on board. This boat is currently listed at $325 million. I tell you that to try to start to get your mind going down the road of extravagance. That's over the top. That is 
lavish. Anything you could possibly want has been provided on this boat in abundance and beyond what you could ever need. And the crazy thing is, the thing that we can't come to grips with is that sort of material wealth doesn't hold a candle to the extravagance and the lavishness of God's grace to us. God has lavished his grace on us in purchasing our freedom and our redemption through Christ. And you know what? It doesn't stop there with his grace. His mission for all of eternity is to continually pour that grace out on us so that we will see it and we will rejoice in it. Look at chapter 2 and verses 6 and 7. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? This is why. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's his mission. That's his goal to just continually show you and I how good his grace is. We have in our family, September is a busy and exciting month. We have four out of the six of us have birthdays in September, and three of our kids have birthdays in the month of September. And one of the things as a parent that is very fun about birthdays for small children is the opportunity to give them gifts that they will enjoy and to see them respond to opening those gifts with great joy. We have some fantastic pictures of our kids the moment they realize what is in the box. And they get this huge smile on their faces and there's joy and sometimes shouting and happiness. And it's wonderful. Gray turned three this year. And when you get to three, you start to, I think, realize everybody's here for me. (laughs) All of these gifts are for me. And so we had this big party with grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins, and it is a delight. Everybody just marvels at watching him open and realize the gifts that have been given to him. And it's not just fun for him. It is a delight for us. It's a delight for us to shower him with gifts and to watch him respond with joy. It's fun as a parent. We want to do that. And the reason is because we've spent a lot of time planning the party, selecting what gifts we're going to give, telling aunts and uncles what to buy him so that we'll get the best reaction out of him. It's, it's enjoyable for us to make it fun for him and to give him things. You and I have experienced the initial phases of God's grace. And we do that through coming to grips with what is being described here as redemption and forgiveness of sins. His grace has been lavished on us. But listen, God is like a parent who is plotting and planning to shower his grace on you and I for all of eternity. He is going to be putting his grace on display for us forever. And what he wants from that is he wants us to respond to that to see how good he is and how wonderful he is. And he wants us to delight and enjoy his grace. And you and I can respond now with delight and joy because of this next gift of grace that is being described in verse 8. 
We have redemption, verse 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And here's the gift that he gives us that helps us to be able to start to understand the magnitude of the grace that we have in redemption and forgiveness. The end of verse 8, he says, Make, or, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, when you read that, let me just adjust your thinking a little bit here. It's really easy to to read that and think that the wisdom and insight belong to God. And that maybe they go in the next verse, that in wisdom and insight, he's made known to us his plan. But I actually think it's a better reading to understand wisdom and insight as gifts that God gives to us in the lavishness of his grace. We need these gifts so that we can understand the magnitude of his grace, and so that we can begin to understand the practical outworking of forgiveness of sins and redemption. So you could say verse 8 like this, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. The lavishing means he's given us wisdom and insight. And Paul actually prays that we would be able to know these things. Look down at chapter 1 and verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then he goes on to continue to pray that we would be able to just grasp the benefits that we have in Christ. They're so magnificent and so amazing and so abundant that you and I can't even begin to grasp them without God helping us to be able to know what he has done for us in redemption and forgiveness. And so it's, it's even hard to try to describe this because I, it, I can't really put it into words. Ultimately, what's going to have to happen is Paul's prayer in chapter 1 is going to have to come true. The Spirit is going to have to give us the understanding and the wisdom to reckon with the grace that we have been shown. I'm not sure I can paint the picture beautiful enough to draw your hearts up in praise and worship to him. But God does promise here in his grace to give us redemption, to give us forgiveness, and then to give us the wisdom and insight to know what that means for us. And so I want to turn the corner here this morning and, and try to talk a little bit practically about what this looks like in wisdom and insight, to begin to understand what it means that you and I have been redeemed and that we have been forgiven from our sins. So as you, as you think back, big picture here of, of verses 3 to 14, chapter 1, what Paul's describing here are benefits, and he's describing who we are, right? I mean, he's telling you, look, this is who you are now. This is your identity in Christ. This is how you need to understand yourself. And so the response to this is to praise God, and the response is to, by faith, to begin to think of yourself this way. To begin to think, I am free from sin. I have been bought out of sin. Christ has done this for me. My sins are forgiven. I'm free from the power and the domination of sin. The shackles are no longer on me. Paul describes this in Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
Paul's stating the reality of our situation. This is your identity now. And so this comes to bear on your daily life because I know there are moments where sinful desires seem to be controlling you and they seem to be overwhelming. And it's almost, it's impossible. I cannot resist. I get so angry in this moment. I just have to respond this way, right? And it seems like I can't fight against that. But this is actually telling you that, no, you are forgiven of those sins. You are redeemed from those sins. Your identity is in Christ now. And you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to fight against that. It doesn't have control over you anymore. And in fact, I would say if you take a step back by coming to grips with who you are in Christ now, with your identity here, that your desires can even be reshaped and reformed before you enter into the moment of temptation. It's not just about that moment where you've got to make a decision. It's actually about changing you to love a certain way, to think a certain way, and to want a certain way. And that happens through reading and understanding who you are now in Christ as it's described here. So, One of the most insidious lies that our culture tells us is that we discover who we are by listening to our desires and our experiences, that that you and I are to be identified with how we feel. If you feel this way, then you are this, and that defines you. That's your identity. That is hopelessly terrible advice. To find out who you are, you do not look inside yourself. You do not turn inward to discover who you are. Identity, your sense of who you are and your place in this world and your understanding of what life looks like for you comes from outside of you, not from inside you and how you feel. Your sense of identity and personhood comes from God primarily, from how you relate to him, not from looking inward. And so Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is telling us fundamentally who we are as human beings. So what is the single most important thing about you? If you're a believer this morning, the single most important fact about you is that you were dead in your sins, you were alienated from God and from a relationship with him, but now the most important thing about you is that you have been chosen by God, you have been adopted by him, you have been accepted, you are redeemed, you are forgiven, and you are lavished with grace. That is your identity now, not your sinful desires, not your experiences. You are not your sinful desires. Your identity is not found in those things. And you Those sinful desires do not have the power over you, if you're a believer, to shape you and demand that you live in a particular way. That has been broken when you were redeemed. So let me say it this way. You are not your anxiety. You're not your anxiety. You're not your same-sex attraction. It does not define you. You are not your anger. This is not your identity. And when we identify ourselves with our feelings and with our desires and our experiences, then sin maintains its power over us and its authority to dominate us. 
And we have to remember, we have to go back here and remember who we are. And that's exactly why we've called this recall and react. Because Paul wants us to identify ourselves with all of these benefits that we have in Christ now. This is the truth of who you are. Believe this truth and let this truth have authority over you. Shape your life to fit with this rather than trying to mix and match and fit this in with how you already feel and how you want to be. And I think part of that is recognizing the forgiveness of sins, our trespasses, and the massive implications that come from the fact that you have been forgiven of your sins. Listen to how important John Calvin thought this was. I love this. If there's anything in the whole compass of religion which it is of utmost or of importance to us to know, this certainly is one of the most important, i.e. to perceive and rightly hold by what means, what rule, what terms, with what facility or difficulty forgiveness of sins may be obtained. He's saying, listen, this is the question. This is what we're after. This is so important for your faith. And he goes on. Here's the practical ramifications. Unless our knowledge here is clear and certain, our conscience can have no rest at all, no peace with God, no confidence or security, but is continually trembling, fluctuating, boiling, and distracted. And the conscience dreads, hates, and shuns the presence of God. Notice the results here of not having a clear grasp of forgiveness. I mean, this is what, what God has showered on us. He's given us wisdom and insight to grasp our forgiveness of sins. And so what is Calvin saying happens when we don't identify ourselves as those who are forgiven of our sins? Well, the conscience has no rest. You tremble, you fluctuate, you boil. That's a great description of emotional uncertainty. You're boiling, you're tossed back and forth, you're distracted. Does that sound like you and how you live daily life? Why is it like that unless we have a clear and confident sense that our sins are forgiven through the work of Christ? It's like that because of the nature of sin. Sin does two significant things in us. It makes us guilty before God, objectively guilty, and then that objective guilt works itself into us and we experience guilt subjectively in our emotions. But it also has created a relational breach with God. And our relationship with God is the most important feature of who we are. We were made in his image, made to know him, made to love him. And when that relational breach is shattered there and we are guilty before him, we are a mess. Our rebellion has made us lawbreakers and put us at odds with God, the most important person in the universe. And so to stand before him as guilty because of our rebellion means that we deserve punishment. And we can never draw close to him. And he is our greatest good and our greatest satisfaction. And we can never have that if our sins are there and we're responsible for our sins. 
And a lot of times people don't recognize this, but it still shapes them. They may not feel guilt, but this reality has formed them and has determined how they live life. Paul says in Romans 2 that the law is written on our hearts. And so it's right to feel guilt for sin, but then guilt leads us to Christ. We rightly assess our guilt before him, and then it leads us to Christ. And now, for the believer, everything has changed because our sins are forgiven. So we can never uphold the law. The law is written on our hearts. We can't obey it. We don't always do the right thing. Our conscience condemns us. We never could uphold the law. Sin condemns us. But now, if you're a believer in Christ, you have recognized this reality that I cannot uphold the law. I cannot do this. I am condemned by sin. And the only thing that will save me is to run to Jesus Christ and to rest in him. And so I repent of my sins and I throw myself on him and his grace and I need his redemption and I need his forgiveness of sin and I need the grace and mercy that are available in Christ. Listen to Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction by his blood to be received by faith. And so we receive this forgiveness of sins by faith. We recognize this reality and it's true in our lives. And then this plays a massive role in your day-to-day life. Forgiveness of sins is not just something that happens to you at the moment of salvation and then you sort of believe it behind, leave it behind. You are forgiven of your sins, but that reality plays a role in your daily life, in your sanctification, in your walk with the Lord. You do not forget that reality. That has to be something that we reckon with and we recognize and we recall all the time. And in Ephesians 1.7, Paul literally grounds our, re- our identity in the fact that we are redeemed and we are forgiven. And he does that because this truth, listen to this, this truth has the power to remake who you are. This is not abstract theology that doesn't connect to your life. This is not some intellectual exercise. Recognizing that you are redeemed and your sins are forgiven has the power to reshape who you are. This is the power of the gospel. It deals with our most fundamental need, a relationship with God, and with our most fundamental problem, the guilt that we have accrued before him because of our rebellion. And the gospel deals with that and wipes away our sin and all the obligations and responsibilities and penalties of our sin are gone. They're out of the picture and our guilt has been decisively dealt with and now we are able to relate to God and we have access to him. Our relationship with him is restored. All of our responsibilities and obligations were placed on Christ and we get redemption and not punishment. And so I want to show you what's the result of recognizing your forgiveness of sins. What does this look like? We'll take the opposite of what Calvin says here, right? The opposite of these negatives is what happens in our lives if you daily come to this forgiveness of sins and appropriate this and believe this. Now you have rest. You have peace with God. You have security in your relationship with him. 
Whereas in our guilt, we shun the presence of God. We don't want him now. We want to come into his presence. We want to pray to him. We have confident access to him. We want to be near him. And so practically speaking, the task for each of us this week is to live in a conscious awareness of the forgiveness that has been brought to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more practical. There's nothing more fundamental to your sense of identity, to your walk with the Lord this week. This is who you are if you're a believer in Christ. The power of sin, its domination over you has been broken and you are redeemed to freedom. So, we've only covered two verses today, but that's okay. Because I want, I want to make sure that we do not jump over this too quickly. I want us to drink deeply at this well. I don't just want us to sip at it and move on. The benefit of redemption and the forgiveness that we have through Christ are deep, deep wells of joy and satisfaction that we want to go to day in and day out and drink of deeply. You will be a different person if you do that. And so next, next week, we'll talk about verses 9 through 12, and we'll talk about how the end of redemption and forgiveness is Christ's purpose for all of creation. It doesn't just center on you and I. It's actually something much bigger than that. We'll look forward to that next week. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by what you have done for us. I want to pray what Paul prays here in a few verses. I pray that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. Reform us and reshape us by these truths. Don't let them just be something that was pretty neat the moment we got saved, but we sort of left behind and moved on to more practical things. Help us to identify ourselves as those who are redeemed and forgiven. And we thank you for those gifts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.